Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is someone who is preeminently suited to being a psychologist or therapist and yet has been denied training in this area because he was discovered by his educational institution of expressing ideas on gender that were not approved by this particular institution and what seems to be the more powerful aspects of the psychological profession in the United States kingdom. Stories such as this are probably not terribly unfamiliar to you, and yet there's something preeminently disturbing about how authoritarians are shutting off debate and kicking people out of the ranks who would otherwise be doing exceptional work because they do not mouth the correct ideology. Without further ado, here is James Esses. I kind of first entered this space by starting off as a volunteer counsellor with Childline, which is basically a children's charity over in the UK. Um, and I've been doing that for about six years. And that was what actually got me into thinking, well, I, I find this so fulfilling helping these people that I want to do it with my life. So I began to cross train as a psychotherapist. I, historically, I've worked in, in law in the UK civil service um, so I started to undertake a master's course in psychotherapy and I was three years through it. And my hope was this, once I was finished that, I was going to go on and practice full time as a psychotherapist and have, have, have my own clinical practice. Hmm. And what was the climate of uh, psychotherapy? What, what did you find most uh, exhilarating and most disappointing about this uh, master's path? Um. I found the client work to be exhilarating. I think it, it, it's a real privilege to be face-to-face -to -face to, with someone and with them sharing some of the deepest parts of themselves that they wouldn't share with anyone else, actually having that insight into people and having the opportunity of potentially making a difference, a positive difference in their lives as a result of the work we would do together. I found that to be extremely fulfilling. Um in terms of the more downside, I, again, I, you know, I found this with my course pretty early on, but it, it was clear that there was kind of um, a way that they wanted you to think about things. Um, you know, it was really quite directive. I found that there wasn't the opportunity to kind of have open, honest debates about what treatment should be like for people who are struggling. So I felt quite boxed in, I think. Hmm. And why, what was the theme of the, uh, or the contours of this box that they wanted everybody to be in? Did you get a sense of like what that was about or where it came from? Um, or is there any uh, exploration of that, if not debate? 
I, I mean, it, it kind of related to all the usual suspects, really, and it, it would it would usually be around issues such as diverse, diversity, inclusion, etc. So, you know, when we had modules on that involving gender, involving race, um, I would find that it became quite preachy, quite directive. And almost this assumption that we we all must, of course, because we're you know we're nice people, we must all think the same way about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would kind of shut down conversation before it could even begin, really, because I certainly kind of felt like if I expressed my true beliefs here, I could get shut down majorly. And so I think my my peers would have felt even more so like that because because usually I'm I, I'm willing to be more vocal about my beliefs. Um, than others might be so yeah I, I i found there was a lot of virtue signaling i think going on from management from the cheaters mm-hmm. did you have any sense or did you develop a sense of how this basic belief system would affect clients in a very intimate setting where they're sorting through uh trying to get onto their own legs or sorting through difficulties? Completely. Um, in a variety of contexts. I mean, obviously, most relevant for me is, is in relation to sex and gender. But, but um, And I can go on to that in a second. But, but even in, in terms of um, race, because I... You know, the, the mantra white privilege, male privilege, these were terms that were being used by my tutors, which felt very uncomfortable at the time. And I, I was always thinking, but, you know, what does that say for, for our clients who are white and male? And actually, I had a client. Um, well, I've had a number of clients, I think, over, over the years who kind of felt something similar along the lines of they they felt like they were struggling in, in the world and yet they felt that they shouldn't complain about it because of the fact that they were privileged. Hmm. They felt that actually other people had it far worse than them. And because of the fact that they were born white, because of the fact they were born male, they should just get on with it. So there was that kind of self-talk going on, that kind of internalised guilt about feeling sorry for yourself when you're in a difficult position. So I think that was actually probably the biggest example to me that I've seen firsthand of someone kind of internalizing all of these social narratives that we've got around privilege, et cetera. Hmm. Were you, did you ever find yourself in an opportunity to talk somebody or to kind of work through that with somebody and see how it's negatively affecting them or, or show them if, and how it's negatively affecting them? Look, it's it's not my it was it's not my role as a therapist to kind of engage in preaching or, or politicking myself. But what I would always do is to come back to basics in terms of empathy, which is that if you know I might I might hear a comment about why well, I shouldn't feel this way because I'm privileged in other respects, etc. And I would just kind of pause and get into a reflective space and kind of reflect back to them the emotion that I could sense from them or or some of the difficult things that they've told me that they've experienced. Uh, And I would kind of, you know, I would reflect back the point that 
yes, we're all privileged and disadvantaged in different ways in our life, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you yourself are going through a difficult time right now. Okay. I find that that would help us get into a different space, actually, of it more in touch with what's going on inside them rather than some sort of worry about how they're perceived by society more generally. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, that is one aspect of what I think is kind of this bigger issue or all this connected different ideas that are floating around, but it's very relevant to when a young person or any person of any age uh, comes to you with, gender issues or dealing with their gender and um, in those contexts what did you perceive as uh, the correct way to help somebody through that well I mean the kind of my, my institutes my membership body they're all signed up to you know a framework around I mean, the framework is about conversion therapy, which was what got me into this in the first place in the petition that I launched to the UK government. But, but it's, at its very heart, it basically supports this idea that sex is mutable and fluid and changeable. So for me, with a counter-belief to that, it, it's there in opposition against one another. And, and, and you can't, you, you feel as if you cannot even have a discussion about this it's almost held as a stick above hmm. you. Um, so, it, you know, when I, when I discovered that kind of governing document and then the way that I was being taught on my course, it was, it was sending a message loud and clear to trainees that, you know, you should be affirming people in what they're saying. And if someone is saying they were born in the wrong body and they're the wrong sex, that you should be affirming them and supporting them in their transition um, almost unconditionally, it, it appeared to me. Um, as I said, that ran counter to my kind of fundamental beliefs about sex and gender generally, but also ethically as therapists, you know, we should not go into contacts with our clients with any preconceived notion of where we should end up with them. But actually, if you go in assuming you're going to affirm somebody into transitioning, you're doing exactly that. And my argument has always been, we must explore these things as we do for any other mental health condition or any other anxiety provoking thoughts or feeling that someone hmm. might have. This is uh, kind of cliche at this point, but why would these medical institutes and these governing boards affirm a concept of being born in the wrong sex, but not affirm the, uh, thought that one is born with the wrong weight why do they affirm gender dysphoria or gender uh, identity and not anorexia do they have a is there a reasoning that you've seen and and why one not the other why why gender is the affirmed thing i i think it comes back down to kind of beliefs again and what's happening is the beliefs of these organizations are then affecting the clinical decisions that they're making um, because, uh, you know, I, I think that when it comes to something like body dysmorphia, when it comes to anorexia, you know, the, the consensus is that these are mental health conditions, whatever someone might think about themselves, their body, 
might well be some sort of fantasy and and it's not our duty to affirm those thoughts it's our duty to do what's in their best interests but actually now if 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 organizations have beliefs that sex is completely fluid well then if someone comes into your counseling room and says i was born in the wrong sex well yeah probably who it's almost a th- it's almost a kind of idea of well who, who am i to question that and so but that that doesn't sit right because we have something called gender dysphoria and that is a recognized mental health condition and i'm forever being told and forever hearing we shouldn't pathologize this but what i mean what choice do we have it, it's a mental health condition that to pathologize doesn't mean to stigmatize it doesn't mean to discredit it doesn't mean to disrespect but what it does mean is to look at things holistically and actually make sure that we're putting people down a proper treatment pathway for these things hmm. and so you took to the open and started speaking about this uh, aloud. You're not the only one. You're not the first. But um, it, why did you step up? Uh, what compelled you to go outside of the box? Um, I mean, originally, I, I just I found myself at a child line speaking to more and more young children of younger ages with with questions that they were born in the wrong body. And so I, I took it upon myself to really dive into all of the research and literature I could on it. And then I, I found myself becoming more and more concerned with the status quo. And I, at the start, I just wanted to have a conversation. I, I tried to engage individuals at my institute in conversation. I tried to engage my membership body in a conversation. Um, I was met with kind of almost threatening type behavior you know along the lines of that i would be reported for even having questioned these things in the first place uh, so that told me very clearly that a lot of these professionals that i was going by weren't willing to have a conversation with me so it was as a result of that that i ended up going externally i put forward that petition to the uk government what was this because p- i felt petition just um so the uk government had said that they were going to introduce legislation to ban conversion therapy which is a you know a very noble piece of legislation and a lot of harm has been done um in terms of conversion therapy historically against those who are gay um but my concern is having seen what's happened with similar legislation in other countries that it ends up conflating gender identity with sexual orientation and it can end up being so broad and ambiguous that it could potentially criminalize therapists who do anything other than affirm someone into transitioning. Mm-hmm. So I launched a petition to the UK government basically saying this this legislation in principle is fine, but can you please make sure you safeguard therapy, particularly for vulnerable children? Mm-hmm. And how was that received? Did the petition get some legs underneath it? It did. Uh, Within a few weeks, we got 10,000 signatures, which meant that the government had to respond to us. And they responded a few weeks ago. And actually, it it was pretty heartwarming to see what they'd responded. They gave a number of assurances. They said any legislation they introduce will uphold free speech, will safeguard vulnerable children, and will protect the independence of clinicians. So for me... That felt like a real, um, I suppose it kind of justified everything I'd been saying, really. And it, and it emphasized to me that my, my beliefs 
although my institutes might say otherwise, we're not radical, we're not abhorrent, because the government have kind of made statements in line with what I was asking for. Hmm. And so far, the sense that I get is that these beliefs of yours, that you just said your beliefs, it, it's more about a process of what therapy should be rather than an outcome driven, what you believe sex and gender to be. Um, but I'm sure you do have beliefs um, such as sex being a biological reality that's Im immutable. Yes. But in the context of therapy, mm. what would ideally be the way that you um, deal with uh, somebody with uh, these struggles with gender? Would it be to oppose them? Or how, how does one go about doing something other than affirming or converting? Yeah, and I think I think that's that's been a narrative I've had thrown at me quite a bit, which is that well, if you don't affirm, by definition, you're opposing, and it's it's simply not the truth. I mean, as therapists, we have to we have to be comfortable with living in the realm of uncertainty and shades of grey, and not actually going into all or nothing, black or white thinking. So, applying that principle to gender dysphoria, it, it should be exactly that. It, it should be a case of taking the time being curious, being explorative, maybe even being gently challenging to try and work with that individual to see what really is going on here. What, what could be contributing towards this? Because I've read so much research showing that often there's other contributory factors to gender dysphoria, often other mental health diagnoses, often historic trauma or bullying, even things such as internalised homophobia. Everyone's going to be completely different, so we shouldn't have a blanket approach to this. We should unpack these things slowly because the implications and the consequences could be severe. If someone goes down the medical pathway, they could end up making irreversible changes to themselves. And I think talking therapy should be there to really open this up and explore what the options are actually um so i i don't i i don't propose to deal with this in, in a way that i would that i wouldn't deal with any other presentation that's that's what's been so strange for me it's that gender and sex has seemed to be it seems to be held out on its own pedestal but it as i said when i'm dealing with mental health struggles i i would approach these in all the same way hmm. the it what are your thoughts on why the the establishment has gone down this path, uh, schools and uh, clinical bodies? Uh, because it seems like within the case of gender and sex, if it's all affirmation, then there's no need for therapy. You're just taking yourself out of the equation or turning yourself into a rubber stamp for other therapies, right? So it, it seems like they're eroding their own profession by going down this path i don't i don't understand or do you understand why as i said earlier i think it's a combination of actually the world of therapy seems to have been and this look this applies to a lot of other entities and a lot of other professions but it does seem to be kind of taken over by those who actually hold these beliefs that 
sex is completely fluid, that people are, you know, that men can give birth, that people are assigned to sex at birth. I, I think a lot of these people have actually taken on very powerful positions um, in a lot of these organisations. Um, in fact, you know, there's, there's kind of uh, working groups in, in my world who kind of control, if you recall, that framework I was talking about earlier that therapists have to abide by. And actually, a number of individuals who are on that working group, I think themselves would say that they were transgender activists. So I'm not really sure how they can make kind of impartial decisions on that basis. But... So, yes, I think it's a combination of genuinely holding those beliefs and then also what seems to be happening in society around this fear that if you do not virtue signal and if you do not appear to be an ally, then you will face the woke mob, really. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's it's difficult to know what what's real and, and what isn't. I mean, when I was expelled by my university, the same evening they posted on Twitter about it, and they also included a kind of statement at the bottom about the fact that they stand in solidarity with the LGBT community. I mean, for me, that was very much them kind of making it about them and us, you know, we're, we're with you and we're not with, you know, awful people like James S's. Um, it, it, was, it was very strange, but I couldn't work out whether that's because they really do view me as absolutely vile and abhorrent or whether they're just virtue signalling. I think it's probably a bit of both. Hmm. So they, you got expelled. Uh, you sunk three years of your life into this program. And how long are the programs? Are, are they five, four years? How close oh, yeah. were you to the finish line? Five? Okay. So that's a significant amount of um, investment that you put into that. Did they sever your ties unceremoniously? What was the response directly to you? So, on and these dates will forever be cemented in my head, unfortunately, but on the 5th of May, I received an email from senior management, the deputy CEO, saying they'd received a few complaints, um, including over Twitter, about my petition, about my advocacy, and they wanted to have an informal conversation to discuss it. They made it very clear to emphasise it was informal. And so, and they said, are you free in two days' time? And I responded, and I said I was feeling quite anxious about it, which which I was because it came out of the blue. But I said, of course, I will take part in this conversation. Um, they haven't provided me with any evidence or any substance yet, and I actually had to go back and request that. But um, their, their response to me saying I was anxious was, we, we don't want to make you feel anxious at all. This really is just an informal conversation. So I felt very reassured by that, and I thought, they're just going through a process. We have to be honest about these things. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll do what's the right thing and I will, I will be open and transparent with them. And then the next day, so less than 24 hours later, I received a, a notification on my laptop and the email subject line included the word termination. And the second I saw it and I saw who it was from, my heart just sunk. And what I read were two paragraphs telling me this actually they had now decided that I brought them into disrepute and they had no choice but to expel me with immediate effect and that the meeting scheduled would not take place. And when I went to respond to that email, I discovered they had already blocked my university email account. So I very literally was expelled over email without ever having had a conversation with someone. 
were, <clears throat> what were the steps for you to um, achieve some sort of fairness in this process? Were there any avenues of uh, complaint or? Well, well, nothing. I mean, as I said, I, I couldn't get back in contact with them. I also had my access to my student portal blocked, which means I couldn't even go and view the policies that they were meant to have done this under. Um, I was not offered any appeal process. That, that was it. I actually, uh, until I then started my legal action, I just never, I didn't hear from them for months. It was as if they, I, I, as, as far as they were concerned, I had just disappeared into the ether. Huh. Very bizarre. It's kind of en- enraging. Well, maybe not enraging, but um, it stirs a desire for vengeance in me if that were to happen to me. Um, if these organizing bodies have taken on this stance, this belief, and there's no arguing with it, and there's, they won't even open up any sort of discussion about why they think that affirm, uh, affirmation only is the best policy, um, that makes them weak with being able to argue about that because they don't see both sides of the argument and they aren't practiced in arguing that. Uh, it's just, you know, it's by fiat. They take it to the next level by not just, you know, silencing dissent, but actively kind of disappearing dissent from their ranks uh, whatsoever. So it, it, it only seems tenable insofar as they can maintain power and they don't have to have any sort of accountability uh, for that. So it seems like the legal action that you're taking might be able to hold them accountable or at least open up the books on that. But what were your uh, intentions with the legal action? Well, I mean, it took me a while to get my head together because I was in, in a pretty bad state because as far as I was concerned, my entire life plan and even my reputation, to some extent, had been completely thrown up in the air. And, you know, it took a few days before I actually thought, well, I, I, I do need to do something about this, actually, because there's a real sense of injustice here. So, I, you know, I reached out to some solicitors and uh, and it was off the back of that that I had it hammered home to me actually and I hadn't you know I felt injustice but I wasn't sure what exactly what's happened here and I, I had it hammered home to me my, by my now solicitor that you know what's happened isn't just a kind of breach of the contract between you and them but actually it's discrimination because you have these core set of beliefs and they've treated you in a way that they would never treat any other student. And they've thrown the policy book out the window because they don't agree with your beliefs. Um, so that's basically led to where we are now. Um, and that forms the basis of the case that I'm now crowdfunding towards. Mm-hmm. So the discrimination on behalf of beliefs, uh, in what ways? this college or this educational institute accountable through the legal system? Are they a state institution or are they bound by anti-discrimination laws generally or specifically? Or Yeah. So, so because they're an institution that they're, they're bound by the equality act in the United Kingdom, which sets out a number of protected characteristics. And actually there's a recent case, which the judgment was only handed down over the last month or two. A, a woman named Maya Forstatter, I'm not sure if, you, if you've heard of her, but um, 
what that did for the first time actually in in England and Wales was enshrine gender critical beliefs as a protected characteristic. So, so basically, what 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 I'm saying is this: I have this protected characteristic, which was my gender critical beliefs, and it was as a result of those beliefs that they then treated me badly and unfairly and discriminated against me, and they've caused me serious harm as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So they can be held to account under those provisions. Hmm. So this case is underway. Do you have any, like, a ballpark of how long you think it might take? How Do you guys, uh, do you know what stage you're even in at this point? You just submitted some papers, and then you wait a month, and then you get something back. We, yes, I mean, we really are at the very beginning of this. As I said, the, okay. the crowdfunding campaign... And, you know, had the crowdfunding campaign not come good, I wouldn't have been able to afford the fees myself. So it just would have fallen at the first hurdle. That was only launched yesterday. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago. It was only launched yesterday. So, yes, the next step is to formally lodge the claim um, and then take it from there, really. I mean, you know, there's backlogs because of COVID in the judicial system over here. So... I, I certainly, if this was to proceed to a trial, I, I am doubtful it would be before mid next year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it could be a it could be a long path ahead. I I think, but it, it it it's still worth it. I think because of of what's happened, and I even if it even if there are bumps along the way, I still think it's something I'd have to pursue. Well, it's not just important for you, but for the entire dialogue. And perhaps perhaps it will force these institutions to actually open up uh, about these beliefs uh, that they're instituting uh, and uh, start to, you know, come clean on that front, um, but also not um, being able to treat other people like they've treated you. Well, what are you going to do in the meantime? I'm, I'm still, thankfully, in employment. Uh, you know, I was, as I said, I was making my own transition into this new vocation. So I, I'm very thankful that I have that and I still have a roof over my head and I can still pay the bills. Um, but in terms of therapy... I'm, I'm not sure. I'm kind of in a state of limbo. It's, um, as I said, my, my reputation's kind of been thrown up into the air. It's a very small world. So undoubtedly, all the other kind of training institutes will be aware of what's happened to me. And I wouldn't be surprised if, therefore, they would view any application from me with some suspicion because one of their fellow institutes has sought fit to expel me for, for, for what I did. So... I don't really know what I'm going to do. It kind of feels like my vocational career has ended before it's even begun. And I, I, I so I, I don't know. I, I need the dust to settle a bit longer. Yeah. Um, I think much of this will simply rest on the outcome of the legal proceedings. And can I, um, can I clear my name? And, and if so, then I would very much like to kind of get back into this world again, because as I said, the reason I, decided to do this in the first place because I found it very fulfilling because I wanted to make a difference, a tangible difference to, to people's lives. So I hope it's not the end of this path for me, but it, everything's quite uncertain at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just speaking with you for the past half hour, uh, 
you have a very therapeutic presence, uh, mm-hmm. and the industry would uh, suffer a loss without you in it. Um, and I've spoken with several other people in your same position in America and other places, and it seems like a certain sort of professional is being uh, pushed out of th- these professions. And uh, over time, there's going to be a huge drain, uh, brain drain, and there will be the need for other professional institutes to come along and uh, make sure that people like you uh, get to do the work that it seems like you are incredibly suited for. Uh, that's a you know, 20, 30-year project, though, perhaps, if um, things don't kind of change. Yeah, I, I I do agree. I think um, it's it's very difficult, particularly in the UK, because there's a couple of membership bodies that hold a bit of a monopoly on this. So everyone wants to be accredited with them, because if you're not, then you will struggle to publicise yourself, and you you might struggle to get clients. So people are almost forced into registering with them. So I I agree with you completely that, that there does need to be an alternative out there not just in the interests of the profession, but in the interests of the clients that we're also seeking to serve. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to so many would-be clients who have said that they're disillusioned with the type of therapists that are on offer to them these days, and, and, and they want to see someone who isn't, for example, solely going to affirm them or who isn't going to presume that they have white privilege just because of the colour of their skin. Are you interested in doing any sort of advocacy work around uh, this or beyond uh, what you're doing? Or uh, do you, would you rather pour your uh, energy into other things? Um, I, I'd like to try and make a difference in sight if I can. So I'm certainly open to other forms of advocacy. Um, I mean, that's what got me into this situation in the first place was kind of standing up for my beliefs. So if I can, if some good can come from the bad situation that I'm in, then maybe, you know, well, that can only be a good thing. Hmm. But I, I don't know, it, you know, we, we've spoken predominantly about sex and gender, and we've touched a bit on race theory, but there's, there's so many other themes that are currently existing in society that I think are to our detriment and and coming from a therapeutic point of view are not good for people's well-being and their mental health overall i think i think identity politics in general is quite damaging for people's well-being i having witnessed it um firsthand myself and it's more extreme uh manifestations i tend to agree is there uh something you do besides uh fix uh uh, noodle with people's minds and study and do you have a hobby a, a super interest are you a sailor or a painter or a poet um no nothing that's exotic unfortunately um what do i enjoy doing uh i enjoy wine um though i'm sure anyone watching this will then assume that i'm an alcoholic off the back of that well you could uh, be a sommelier i actually to, to be honest i actually did a wine tasting course um Though all of my friends seem to think that I only did that to drink the free wine that was on offer as part of it, but um, so I, I do have some certificate in wine tasting. Um, huh. So I suppose I can always use that to justify my drinking. Um, 
just traveling, adventure. I'm looking forward to things opening up after COVID, hopefully eventually. I'm looking forward to coming back to the States at some point as well. Hmm. It's been too long. You've traveled through uh, the Americas? Yeah. um, I was in South America, actually, when the pandemic hit, and I was very close to being stranded in Chile um, because when the borders were closing. So actually, I'm thankful to have even made it back to the UK at all. Um, so that was exciting, but yes, I, I, love, I love America. Um, I think it's a great place. So, if if you guys could open up your borders and be a bit more flexible, that would be appreciated. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of different issues going on over here. I don't know how it's all going to shake out. Huh. Um, do you have any uh, like uh, a parting salvo? Um, how about this? Um, what? What is the idea or the thought or the perspective or a quote or something that's helped you to maintain a center or grounding during this tumult? How, how have you, um, what have you clung to or, or looked to, to get through it? Um, a few years ago, I met one of my political idols and I, it was kind of a meet and greet session and I was extremely nervous about it because I'd never really spoken to him before I'd seen him at so many events but you know it, it, he's not without controversy and it, it had cost me quite a lot even just supporting him and I, I went up and that's what I said to him I said I, I, I remember what I said exactly I think I said what I say? I said I said supporting you has cost me relationships and friendships in my life but I have no regrets and he spent five minutes talking to me and and basically kind of imparted upon me that no matter what I do if you follow your beliefs you're going to have people who try and drag you down who try and ruin your reputation and also try and tell you that it isn't possible and he said just do not listen to them and, and always go with your gut and always fight for what you believe in and that message has stuck with me and it's informed everything that I've done ever since. And so I'm, I'm just happy that I'm being true to myself and I'm happy that although having my beliefs and standing up for them has gotten me into this awful mess, I'm, I'm still happy that I've taken his advice and I've tried to be strong enough to just roll with it anyway. Hmm. There are many reputable people um, supporting your crowd uh, funding uh, efforts. And uh, just to dispel any worries about where that money goes in case people uh, stumble upon this and want to donate, what is the crowd uh, crowdfunding thing for and how? Uh, where does the money go? Yeah, so it's, it's an organization called Crowd Justice. It's been used to fund quite a lot of high-profile cases in, in the UK, including that Maya Forstatter case that I mentioned earlier. It's all completely regulated. It all has to comply with money laundering regulations. I, as the kind of crowd funder, never see the money. My solicitors are already approved and on their system. And so it's a way to enable my solicitors, basically, to get paid for the work that they're doing. Um, I mean, the, the, the website itself gives a great deal of reassurance in terms of where people's money goes. Um, so, yes, I mean, we've done really well. My initial target was 50. 
just before I hopped on this call, I think it was at about forty-one, forty-two thousand. Um, We're talking uh, Great British pounds. Pounds, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's inclusive of tax and also a small cut that the crowd justice platform gets. Um, but yes, so if, if people would like to either read about the cause or donate, um, they can find the crowdfunding link on my Twitter, which is just my name, James S's, and I've got a whole crowdfunding page where I talk through exactly what happened to me and the action that I'm taking. And where can people find you and read up on you and uh, uh, follow your work? Uh, again, Twitter is probably the best bet. I mean, I'm very late in the days, Twitter. I only got it in April of May of this year. So I um, do the shit show. <laughs> I know. Actually, I think my life was probably a lot happier before I discovered Twitter. But uh, there we go. I'm, I'm, I'm in it now. Um, so, yes, I think Twitter is probably the best place to look. Um, but also I've, I've taken part, particularly over recent days, in, in a variety of interviews. And I've, I've, I've been interviewed for some UK newspapers as well. So I think even just typing my name into Google should produce some of that. Excellent. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me. And um, sorry for your position, but I'm really glad that you're standing up on principle. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been an enjoyable conversation. I enjoy these types of kind of open dialogue um, and, and choosing the breeze a bit and certainly be interested to talk to you again at some point, particularly when things progress a bit further down the line. Absolutely. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.